Mark chapter 14. The Bible says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. her. She has done a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. For she has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You may be seated. We have come, as we have journeyed through Mark's gospel together, to this final section of the gospel the final section that everything else in the entire book has been building up to. Everything in Mark's gospel has been pointing us toward these last three chapters as we consider the last days of Jesus' life on earth. If you have been following along and reading along as we have went through Mark's gospel, you will notice that in these last chapters, everything slows down dramatically. We are given an in-depth look at Jesus' life and His ministry over these last few days. We find that Jesus becomes increasingly isolated. Ultimately, those around Him leave Him. And we find Him, as we get to the end of Mark's Gospel, alone. On the cross, by Himself, taking on our sins and the sins of the world. We find that he has been abandoned by everyone close to him. We find that he's tried and he's executed, and everyone who follows him has deserted him. It may seem odd that we would look at this passage during this time of the year. Of course, in part, that comes because we're preaching through Mark's gospel and coming to whatever is next, and yet, I think it's pretty appropriate that we would examine this portion of Jesus' life at this time of the year. See, we think about during Christmas the gift that God has given us, and we understand that that gift was given to us during the time that we celebrate as Christmas, that God sent His Son into the world to live among us so that we could have a relationship with Him. But we also understand that that gift does not find its full meaning until Christ goes to the cross and dies in our place. If you think about it, it would have been pretty cruel for God 
to have sent his son, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He would have sent him and he would have lived out his perfect life in demonstration to us of of how we should live, but then not have sent his son to the cross so that we could have an opportunity to live that life. Had Christ been born in Bethlehem and lived his perfect life but not died in our place, we would have no opportunity to have a relationship with God. We would be lost and we would be without hope. And so the hope that is found in Christmas is found both in the manger but also at the cross. It's where we find our redemption. It's where we find our hope. See, we could not celebrate Christmas without having the cross and God's offer of redemption. And so as we come to the last week of Jesus' life, we're reminded of the great gift that God gave us throughout Christ's life, and it's fully realized at the cross. This morning, as we begin to think about the last week and the last days of Jesus' life, I want us to think about the extravagant love that is shown by Christ in this passage. We see extravagant love given to us by God, but we also see in in the actions of this woman whose name we're not given in Mark's Gospel, we see in her actions extravagant love returned to Christ. I think it is easy, especially as we come to Christmas, as we are thinking about this time of the year, to think about the extravagant love that God has shown to us, and it's right to do that. But there is also extravagant love that is shown by this woman toward Christ. And it is a pattern for the love that you and I are to give to Christ. This woman does something that it raises the attention and it raises the ire of the people who are around her. It causes them anger. It causes them indignation. But it's something that we cannot ignore because it reveals to us the love that we are to return to Christ because of what He has done for us. Unfortunately, extravagant love is not always appreciated. It's not appreciated when this woman uh, shows it to Christ. It's not appreciated in our culture. It's underappreciated or not appreciated in the church. And this is something we should seek to remedy. You and I need to seek to understand the extravagant love that God has shown us. We also should learn to appreciate and celebrate and demonstrate extravagant love to others. But most importantly, we should appreciate, celebrate, and demonstrate the extravagant love that we should show toward Christ. I don't know if you think about that very often, but we have a responsibility to show love to Christ. So let's look at what happens when Extravagant love is shown to Christ in response to the extravagant love that He has shown to us. As we begin in verses 1 through 2, we see that extravagant love is often ignored by people who have hard hearts. 
Extravagant love is ignored by people who have hard hearts. We find, as they often are, the religious leaders of Jesus' day are plotting how they might arrest Him and how they might kill Him. They've been doing this now throughout most of Mark's Gospel. That's just their mindset. They have sought how they might destroy Christ. They do not like Him. They do not like His ministry. They do not like what He stands for. They do not like that so many people respond to His message and His ministry. And so they have sought how they might destroy Him. And so again, we find as we begin in verse, or chapter 14 that they are trying to destroy Him once again. And they're looking for a good time to do it. Mark has given us a very precise time. It is two days now before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover was a one-day celebration, and it was followed up by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was to commemorate what God had done in delivering His people out of Egypt. If you'll remember back in the book of Exodus, we find where God sent the plagues to change Pharaoh's heart. And ultimately, it's the last plague where the angel of death comes across Egypt and all of the firstborn are killed that causes Pharaoh to change his heart. And the people of God are spared by this plague by sacrificing a lamb and taking uh, the blood of the lamb and putting it on the doorpost of their home. And when they did that, the angel of death passed over. He saw the blood applied to the doorpost of their home and he went on his way and did not pour out that plague upon their home. And so every year, as God had prescribed, they celebrated this feast. And so Jesus and His disciples are in Jerusalem for this feast. They're there for the Passover. And all of this is taking place in preparation of that event. And so the religious During this time, there would be many pilgrims who would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Some estimates would say that Jerusalem would grow from a city of of 50,000 people to a city of 200,000 people during this particular event. And so they didn't want to cause anger. They didn't want to cause a riot because that's something that would surely cause them great problems. And so they decide we're going to wait and do it after. But why? Why is it that they would seek to arrest him by stealth and kill him. What would make them do that? What had Christ done to deserve this retribution from these religious leaders? What, What crime had he committed that would cause them to want to seek to put him to death? Well, the only conclusion that you can come to as you read the Gospels is that they did not like appreciate, respect his extravagant love. What they had witnessed is throughout his entire ministry, he had poured extravagant love on all of those he'd come into contact with. He had healed people. He had raised the dead. He had given the blind their sight. The deaf could hear. He had called these disciples who were following him out of whatever profession they were in, whether they were fishermen or tax collectors or whatever. He had called them out of that and shown them a new way of life. He had called them to be his disciples. He had shown and demonstrated extravagant love. And that's something they simply could not tolerate. 
Extravagant love is ignored by hard hearts. We could even say that extravagant love is hated by those who have hard hearts. He had offered compassion and healing publicly, and they sought to kill him. Even those times when Jesus had confronted the religious leaders, he was still showing them extravagant love because he was trying to correct them. They thought wrongly. They believed wrongly about God. And Jesus had sought to fix their problem. He had sought to correct their understanding. And that was extravagant love. And yet a hard heart ignores extravagant love. A hard heart has no respect for extravagant love. A hard heart pushes extravagant love away. You and I need to guard our hearts in this area. We need to be cautious about how we understand extravagant love. First, we must not ignore God's extravagant love. The world is ignoring God's extravagant love. The world is accepting love that that is temporary, exchanging it for the love of God. Ignoring what God is doing, ignoring what God has done, and exchanging it for something that is less. That is a sign of the hard heart that people in our world have. As a matter of fact, people seek to end extravagant love. The world seeks to put an end to the things that Christ has done. They seek to push down on the things that Christ has said. They do not understand it. It's the same for people in the church. Many people in the church do not appreciate the extravagant love that God has shown. They certainly do not appreciate when someone shows extravagant love back toward God. Or We're going to talk about this in a moment. But it's sad to think that so often people who, who desire to show extravagant love back toward God, they want to dedicate themselves to Him. They want their heart to be totally... ...within the church. People who do not feel this, this love toward God, people who do not feel the desire to show God, extravagant love out of their life, often look at people who are excited about the things of God, who are on fire for the things of God, who are directed by the things of God. They see that and it makes their faith feel cheap or somehow less and they try to stamp it down. Rather than celebrate extravagant love, they fight against it. We must not be like that. When we see God showing extravagant love towards someone, we should be excited. When we see others who want to return that extravagant love toward God, we should celebrate that with joyful hearts. You may ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to show extravagant love toward God? We know that he had demonstrated extravagant love, and apparently it had impacted this one particular woman's life. Somehow, she had been connected with, she had been impacted by God's extravagant love in Christ. 
We don't know why. We don't know what he had done. And it's truly irrelevant. Somehow, God's extravagant love had impacted this woman that we're going to encounter in these next verses. And it causes her to commit herself to showing extravagant love toward Christ. Look as we begin. Verse 3. In verses 3 through 9, we need to understand that it is honorable, it is honorable to pour extravagant love on Christ. Yes, that is a play on words. If she pours something, let's help you remember. It is honorable to pour extravagant love on Christ. What does it mean for us who have been given this extravagant love from God, to then pour it back on Christ. Let's look at what she does. First, we should understand, if we're going to show God extravagant love, there is no gift that is too valuable for Christ. There is no gift that is too valuable for Christ. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This woman shows up. We don't know about her. We don't know her background here in Mark's gospel. She shows up to this guy who had the worst nickname ever. He's Simon the leper. We can assume that he is no longer a leper, because if so, he would be out, you know, an outcast, out of society. But apparently he is not. He has a home, but his nickname is Simon the leper. And Jesus is there hanging out, reclining at the table. And this woman shows up. And she's got this small, this small, just, A small jar, if you will, this flask of ointment. Small, a one-use kind of thing. You break it open. It's it's something that would be very precious to her family. It's something we find out in the verse to come was very expensive. Three hundred denarii. A denarii was a person's wages for one day. 300, that would be your, basically your year's salary. So think about whatever you make in a year. You're spending it, using it right there, one time, one time thing for someone else. And so she breaks it and she anoints his head with oil, with, with this, this ointment. Now think about, for this woman, regardless of where it came from, whether she just had the wealth to go buy it, whether it's something that had been in her family for a long time, whatever the purpose, whatever the reason, wherever it came from, regardless, it was something that was very expensive. It was something that was very precious. And what does she do with it? Does she save it for herself? You know, one day she's going to die and that's what's going to anoint her body. 
Is something she's going to pass on to her children? No, she gives it to Christ. We don't know what impact he had had on her. We don't know what he had done for her. If there had been some type of healing that had taken place, if she had witnessed some type of miracle, whatever it was, all of that is irrelevant. Christ had had such an impact on her that she is willing to pour extravagant love on him. There is no gift too valuable for Christ. Think about some of the things that we hold dear to ourselves. Think about some of the things that we hold on to instead of giving up. What's interesting about most of our relationship with Christ is that we don't withhold from Him just the things that are very valuable, but we withhold from Him much of the things that we have. Think about the things that you value most in your life. Some of them are very good, no doubt. Some of, some of you highly value your family, your spouse, your children. That's a good thing to value. It's an important thing to value. Is that thing, whatever it is, whatever's the most valuable thing to your life, whether it is something important and of worth or whether it is something trivial that you just happen to value, whatever it is, what would it take for you to give it over to Christ? At what limit is the gift too valuable to give over to Jesus? This is where we get into pouring out extravagant love. This is where I feel like the church messes up in this. What would it mean if your child came to you today and said, said Daddy, I want to I dedicate myself to Christ? We would think that's good, right? Because I, I want to move overseas somewhere, and I'm not going to come back. Now, some of you are already thinking you don't like that. There's your problem. There's our problem. We're not willing to give over the best things to Christ. And yet that's what he deserves, is it not? The, one of the pastors that preached in our revival talked about his granddaughter who is going to Asia to be a Bible translator. She's not going to an easy place. It's, it's always a hard place where you go and, and they don't know what a Bible is. When, when you go somewhere and they don't have a written language, and they've never read the Bible, you're going to one of the hard places. Is it enough that Christ has poured out extravagant love on you for you to be willing to give up whatever gift it is because you commit yourself to saying there is no gift that is too valuable? God, if I've got a job that you don't want me to have, I'll give it up. I'll go where you want me to go. God, you can have my, my kids, you can have my spouse, they're yours. We can, you can use them however you need to. God, you, you need my finances. You say, well, God doesn't need the money, he's got all the money in the world. Well, for some reason, he's asked us for money. Not because he needs it, but because it's an act of obedience. He comes to you and says, I need money for this. 
You going to give it? You going to turn it over to him? Is it going to be his? What is the value of a gift for it to be too valuable for Christ? This woman gives up the most expensive thing she has. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say later, she has done, in verse 8, she has done what she could. That's all she had. You remember not so many weeks ago, we talked about a widow who walked in and she gave all that she had. And guess who got commended? Her. Because there was no gift too valuable for her because it was going to God. It's honorable to pour extravagant love on Christ because there is no gift too valuable. It's also honorable, as we find out in verses 4 through 5, it's also honorable even though you're often disrespected. Extravagant love is often disrespected. Can you imagine that in the church as someone who would completely dedicate themselves to God being disrespected for doing that very thing? Maybe you wouldn't do that, and you don't think you know, that the people around you would do that, and that's fine, but there are people who do that. Someone announces again, they're going to go to the mission field. Why would you want to do that? Or the, the whole, well, aren't there lost people here? That's the poorest excuse I've ever heard for churches keeping their money here instead of sending it to missions. As if God hadn't planted a whole room full of people here and all kinds of churches here to reach lost people. But there's other places where they don't even have a Bible in their language. Following after God is often disrespected. Look what happens. This woman does this beautiful thing. Christ himself calls it a beautiful thing. And look at the response. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves, and you notice they, they say it to themselves. You know, They're whispering in their group or they're, they're saying it internally. Why? Verse 4, why was the ointment wasted like that? She just poured it out on his head. What a waste. Why was it wasted like that? For this ointment, verse 5, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. She poured extravagant love on Christ and she is scolded by his disciples. They feel as if it's been wasted. Now we know if we go to John's Gospel, we know that Judas was one of these men. He was one of the ones who complained. And he did not care about the He liked to make use of the money bag himself. He was in charge of the money. And so he looked at it. He looked at the situation and he thought, man, we could have really stockpiled some money off of that ointment. We could have put back money for the future. We could put back money for the revolution. We could put back money for the rebellion that's going to happen. Whatever it was, but mostly for him, it was, hey, we could have put back some money. So when I needed it, I would have had some. She's disrespected. His intentions were never pure. He is a man who has been influenced by Satan. But her desire, this woman's desire, was to pour extravagant love out on Christ. We 
We must never get like that in our handling of our personal lives, the finances, and the finances and lives of our church. Where we are willing to make up excuses, we are willing to twist the facts so that we can keep things for ourselves. If we look throughout history and we look in the Bible, we find that the people that were the most blessed are the people that gave what they had away. It sounds good, right? We're going to give it to the poor. We're going we're gonna to help the poor. That, that sounds good, but what they missed was the point of what Jesus was doing. And he rebukes them. As a matter of fact, we, we see that in the next verses. He rebukes them. See, you don't find Jesus scolding the woman. He's the one who's been anointed, and you don't find him going, hey, hey, you know, you're right. We shouldn't have wasted this money. Jesus is not pleased with their actions. He calls her actions beautiful. He says, listen, you're always going to have the poor with you. You're always going to have opportunity to help them. But she took a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to help me. She took a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to minister to me. I'm not always going to be here. I wonder. I wonder if we pass up those opportunities God has given us. See, extravagant love directed toward Christ is not soon forgotten. Again, if we look in the Bible and we look throughout the history of the church, those people who poured extravagant love back on Christ are the ones we remember. Not only this woman, but think about people like the Apostle Paul, a man who hated Christ, a person, a terrible person who did terrible things, but when he felt and saw the extravagant love Christ had demonstrated to him, he spent the rest of his life pouring extravagant love back on Christ. When he saw that Christ had died in his place to give him forgiveness of his sin, he dedicated his life to showing extravagant love toward Christ. That was the focus of his life. It was the focus of everything he did for the rest of his life. See, when we demonstrate extravagant love toward Christ, it is not soon forgotten. So how do you show extravagant love? How do you, as sinful as you are, how do I, as sinful as I am, how do we show extravagant love toward the perfect creator of the universe who has given himself for us? There's two ways. First is our life. How do we live? Do we live in a way that is honorable toward Christ? Do you live in a way that is honorable toward Him? Do you seek in your life to keep His commandments? Do you seek to follow after Him on a daily basis? Do you look at the things in His life that were important and make them important things in your life? That's how you show Him extravagant love. is by imitating Him. By being like Christ. He was the perfect example. He lived a sinless life. And we are called to imitate him.
when we take our lives and mold them toward Christ. That is us giving him honor and glory and praise by saying, we want to be like you. We think about the people in our life who have been most influential. Maybe it was a parent or a teacher or a friend, someone. If they were truly influential in your life, even today, even if it's been a long time since, you knew them a long time since they've passed on, whatever it is, you still think about the things that they did that impacted your life. You still think about how they lived and what they did, and you want to be like that. You think about the decisions that they made. You think about the character that they had, and you want to imitate that. How much more so is it with Christ? He is the object of our affection. He is the one who we follow and direct our lives by. That's the first way that we can show extravagant love toward Christ is living a life that is pleasing to Him. But the second way is connected to it. We show extravagant love toward Christ by what we do with our life. It's simply not enough to be people of moral character. I mean, how do you even define that in our society now? How do, you, how do you define character in the world that we live in? Just look at the people, one of which will be the next president of our country. Both parties, all parties, every party, look at how many of them have serious moral and character flaws. And yet, They're our best. Out of 315 million people in our country, those 20 or so are our best. It's not enough to live morally. The question becomes, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life to show extravagant love toward Christ? Think about that. If you had to sit down and make a top five list, would it be difficult because there are so many things that you want to put in the top five? Or would it be difficult because there's nothing to equal five? You couldn't count the number of things that you have done to demonstrate your love toward Christ to make up a list of five. This is how we show extravagant love, by our life and what we do with it. And then thirdly, we have seen that extravagant love is not welcomed by people with hard hearts. We've seen that this woman chose extravagant love. But then we come to some of the darkest verses in the New Testament. We find out that Jesus is betrayed. And we find out that extravagant love stands in contrast to greed. 
extravagant love, showing extravagant love, demonstrating extravagant love, stands in contrast to greed. We are reminded of this with Judas in verses 4 through 5, where he says, hey, we should have given this money to the poor, and yet we know that he is stealing. This passage, this woman coming in and anointing Jesus, reminds us in some ways of Mary and Martha. Martha is frustrated because she wants Mary to help her. Martha is running around and and she is cooking and cleaning and preparing things. And Mary is sitting idly by. At least that's Martha's perception. Mary is sitting by, and we see this in Luke chapter 10. Mary is sitting and listening to Jesus. And we find out from Jesus that Mary has chosen the better way. Judas just wants to steal this money. He's greedy. But extravagant love stands in contrast to greed. We need to think about our motivations. We can easily lose focus of the main thing because of our greed. I sat in a meeting one time with leaders in the church I was pastoring, and they were thinking about the budget. This is not here, by the way. I guess I should have started out by making that part clear. We were talking about the budget, and it was a particularly tough time, and we were going to have to cut the salaries of, of everyone involved, uh, everyone who worked for the church, from, from the, the custodian to the pianist to the music director, everyone was going to have to take a pay cut. We were going to have to cut the budget drastically. And as we were doing that, one of the people in the group, they had a, a, a brilliant idea of how to fix the problem. They said, you know, we've got this line item here for missions. And we could just cut it. And it would take care of all of our financial problems. Because we're giving away this percentage and it's, it's obviously affecting us. We could just cut this and we would be fine. And a wise gentleman He'd been in the church for probably 40 years or more. He said, you know, he said, I think not. He said, you know, we did that one time. He said, we were in the same circumstance. Things were not looking good. We were needing to make some cuts and some adjustments. And he said, you know, we decided that was the place to cut. He said, it didn't work out real well for us. He said, and things went downhill pretty quick till we put that amount back in our budget. He said, I, I think we'll not cut that. The problem was, the man who wanted to make the cut, it wasn't so much that that was the last resort or the best idea. It's because he just didn't really understand, really want to know where that money went. And he knew it didn't stay at the church. And he didn't want to give it away. We have to check ourselves. There's a lot of churches that are concerned about really good things, but they're not fully committed to the best things. Did you know that? Some things are better than others. We must be committed to pouring extravagant love on Christ. But then we come to Judas. Verses 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas, who has been with Jesus through much of his ministry, Judas, who has witnessed Jesus do amazing things, he has witnessed this woman's unyielding love for Christ, and yet all it has caused him is anger and bitterness and hatred. This is not sufficient for him. So he sells Jesus. He sold Jesus. That's what he did. We can talk about what happens at the end. We can talk about what Judas does at the end by returning the money and taking his own life. But he sells Jesus. We know that Judas would steal from the poor. It wasn't as if he simply was upset that Jesus wasn't giving this money over to people that needed it. His hatred and his greed caused him to overrule the extravagant love that he has seen in Christ. He sells Jesus. Isn't that what we often do by withholding extravagant love? I mean, Christ has demonstrated extravagant And yet far too often as Christians and far too often churches sell Christ out. They've witnessed nothing but Christ's unyielding love. They've witnessed nothing but demonstration after demonstration of His love and affection for them. And they sell Him out. They turn Him away. Judas, of course, is doing God's plan. We shouldn't be distracted from that. It's not as if... Jesus is walking along one day and he's surprised by what Judas does. He knows. Matter of fact, we'll encounter that next week. But Judas is not impacted by God's extravagant love. Whereas other disciples, though they will deny Christ in the case of Peter, though they will flee from him, they do return. And all of them, except John, give their life in an act of extravagant love, return to Christ. All of them. Except for John, who's exiled and punished greatly. They die in God's service. An act of extravagant love. And so I wonder this morning, if you've committed yourself to showing extravagant love toward Christ, When you think about the extravagant love that he has demonstrated to you. Have you ever thought about the fact that in that calling, you have the command, you have the obligation, you have the responsibility to show extravagant love back to Christ. 
See, we often show mediocre love. That's what's become acceptable in our culture, is it not? Most people are satisfied with a mediocre love between them and their spouse. Most people are satisfied with a mediocre love between them and their family, between them and their children. They're satisfied with that. That's good enough. You know, as, as if it's on some type of, of bell curve, and as long as we fall there in the middle, you know, our marriages are good enough, our family relationships are good enough, whatever. We are satisfied with mediocre love. And yet, if God had demonstrated to us mediocre love, if instead of the riches of the gift of Christ, He had shown us mediocre love, well, all of us would be destined for an eternity separated from God in hell. That's mediocre love. That's just getting by. That's so-so love. But God was not satisfied with mediocre love. He was not satisfied with just getting by. He poured upon us the extravagant love of His Son. We, on the other hand, squeaked by. Should we be satisfied with that? Should we be satisfied with just squeaking by with Christ? Should we be satisfied with showing Him mediocre love in response to the great gift He has given to us? We decorate the stage and at the center is the manger the manger scene where we think about the arrival of King Jesus. Have you ever read that story before? I encourage you, you can go to Matthew and you can go to Luke and you can read of the arrival of the king. Does it sound mediocre? We've got a big cross that we normally keep on the stage. We are going to be putting a large cross right here at the first of the year for uh, a new initiative for 2016. That a, a large cross. We were talking last week about how big we should make it. Why? Because that cross stands as a reminder of the extravagant love that God showed us in Christ. Why then? Would we be satisfied with showing him mediocre, haphazard love? Oftentimes in the church, we don't even really like people that show extravagant love toward Christ. We think they're odd. Those odd people that show up for random Bible studies, those odd people that go on mission trips, those odd people that tell other people about the gospel of Christ, those weirdos. However, you and I must be those people. He has shown us extravagant love. We can no longer settle for lesser things. We can no longer be satisfied by getting by in our faith. This woman comes and she takes this flask of expensive
for my burial. And the question for us is, what have we done to show extravagant love toward Christ? Does our life reflect the extravagant love He has shown to us? What are we doing in our life to demonstrate extravagant love toward Him? You and I must richly pour out love on our Savior and His kingdom. So the question is, how are you demonstrating extravagant love toward Christ? Don't be above sitting down and making a list. Don't be above sitting down and making sure you're doing what Christ has called you to do. Don't let it be just some idea out there in your mind or out there somewhere floating around. Make it concrete. Are you committing your life to showing extravagant love toward Christ? Have you ever made a sacrifice for Him? If not, what a great time to begin doing so. As we think about the extravagant love shown us in Christ's incarnation, in Christ coming to dwell. As reminders of God's amazing love toward us. What are we doing to demonstrate what His love has done in our life? What are we doing? How are we living to demonstrate what God has done for us? Or do we stand by with hard hearts? Those are our options. Mediocre love, it comes from a hard heart. Just getting by faith It comes from a hard heart. What are we doing? How are we living to demonstrate God's extravagant love? We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us. God, we thank you that even though we so often fail to demonstrate, God, the love that is within us, God, we're grateful that you poured out your love upon us, even when we did not deserve it. God, encourage our hearts this morning. Encourage our hearts. Help us to see where we have come short of returning the amazing, extravagant, precious love that you have given us back to you. Lord God, we need you to challenge our hearts this morning. God, what a difference it would make in our church, in our community, if our commitment was demonstrating your extravagant love.
God, there was nothing more you could do. You gave all that you had. And God, you called us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. If you do not know Christ this morning, I want to remind you, even if you've heard it a million times before, I want to remind you that Christ has demonstrated love for you beyond anything else you have ever encountered or witnessed in sending His Son. And we celebrate that at this time of the year. We celebrate that He has come and that He has dwelt among us. But we also remember that He went to the cross so that we could have life in Him. This morning, if you do not know Him, He calls out to you with this wonderful love and He calls you only to receive it. He doesn't call you to do a bunch of stuff so that you can have His love. That's the beautiful thing for us who are saved, who know Christ. We have His love already. We didn't have to earn it or work for it. But He calls us to pour it out. If you do not know Him this morning, I would love to share with you how you can know Christ, how you can have a relationship with Him, how you can experience His extravagant love. I know most of you know Christ. I encourage you, examine your heart. Think about how you live. Think about what you do with your life. Is it demonstrating the love that God has placed in your heart? If not, today is the day. The past is irrelevant. Today is the day where we commit ourselves to showing Christ's extravagant love. Would you respond to his word this morning as we sing?